Support comes from the San Juan Islands. Spring in the San Juans can provide time to slow down and savor the scenery of quiet beaches, hiking, biking, and whale watching on Lopez, Orcas, and San Juan Island and Friday Harbor. Learn more at visitsanjuans.com. Set your mind to island time. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. Hi, this is Bill Radke. We have journalists together in one spot on a Friday, as we do. We're figuring out what happened this week and what it means to you. We've got South Seattle Emerald Opinions Editor Mike Davis with us. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, Bill. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Kitsap Sun Military and Bremerton Reporter Josh Farley. Welcome back, Josh. Hey, Bill. Good to be with you. Uh, you too. And it's even rainy in Yakima, I understand. We've got Crosscut's <laughs> Central and Eastern Washington Reporter Mai Huang. Welcome back, Mai. Hello. Thanks for having me. True story, cloudy, rainy on the east side. Yeah, it's 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 actually wet. <laughs> Someone, one of my colleagues, uh, <laughs> sent a message to everybody. He said, uh, "I'm so done with this friggin' rain." And uh, there's really no response to that if you're kind of enjoying the rain, as I am, because no one wants to hear that. Uh, uh, I can say it because um, no one's in the room. It's just to you. Uh, you know, anonymous many people. But if you're in a group of friends who are complaining about the rain, you just got to nod your head and sympathize. That's your job. Um, okay, let's, by the way, we're live streaming the show. You can watch us on YouTube, Facebook, just search KUOW Public Radio. And let's get into the news of the week. A new state law took effect this week in Washington, and it lets K-12 through public school students miss class for mental health reasons. They get unlimited excused absences. No need for a note or a medical diagnosis. Mike, why did the legislature pass this law? Well, they passed it. It comes a year after Governor Inslee declared a youth mental health crisis. And this was last year. Um, Schools were still virtual. This is before Inslee had mandated that students or that schools reopen that students can come back. And what we were seeing, especially here in Seattle, Children's Hospital had reported that they were getting one to two youth ages 12 to 17 per night coming into the hospital after attempting suicides. Um, Their emergency room for youth over at Children's Hospital had reported a 31% uptick in youth having to come in over mental health issues. And, you know, these these numbers and these upticks that we were seeing were pretty consistent throughout the pandemic up until that point. So Governor Inslee made that announcement and then we got House Bill 1834. And then, you know, we got this whole slew of laws. But I will say, Bill, this isn't just unique to Washington. There's actually 11 other states that already have these laws. Now, what's unique in Washington is that we're the only state as of right now whose laws state that the students do not need a doctor's note, they don't need a medical diagnosis, and we're the only state to have these mental health absences be unlimited. So as many absences as our students need, they're all excused if it's mental health. So that's a huge win for students in Washington. Well, I, I want to hear from my other panelists, too, but we got so many listener responses to this uh, that, that are worth talking about. So I'm going to start us off with a listener named Chelsea in Pierce County, who says, I live with bipolar disorder and spent my high school years depressed. This new law sets up kids to take advantage of the school policies as well as hide their mental health struggles. 
Students, parents, and school counselors should be aware of a mental health issue with them and be able to excuse them on an individual basis. I went untreated for many years into adulthood because of stigma and lack of resources and accessibility for mental health care. This new law doesn't promote getting help for mental health challenges that affect an individual and treatment if needed. It actually says stay home with your quote-unquote problem and we won't have to talk about it. That's not a solution. That's a further stigma. So, Mike, was that was that kind of objection taken into account when this law was formed and are there ways to guard against that? Well, I think what was taken into account was the fact that so many kids were struggling and so many kids were winding up in the hospital. So I absolutely understand where that listener is coming from. But I would say on the other side of that, you know, kids can be misdiagnosed. Some kids just don't have access to the adults. I would love to hear from the rest of the panel about their situation in their local school districts as far as the availability of counselors. We have a whole movement of students in Seattle right now that are fighting tooth and nail to get more counselors per kid in each school. So the idea that any kid that's having these issues just has access to help is actually false, especially if we're talking about the Seattle Public School District. Yeah, I mean, uh, jumping off your point, Mike, yeah, I mean, I think the provider issue is definitely one we have to address and not just counselors, but we're just talking um, even just for just a general population, getting access to counseling, a therapist, like people that can help. That's it's been really tough. I mean, I I know in just among my colleagues, it, it's so hard to get an appointment. <laughs> um, so and that's like adults who have insurance and things. So imagine kids who don't know what's wrong with them, you know, they, their access to providers. Is, so, yeah. So, I mean, I agree with the listener. There are valid, there are other issues that need to be addressed. Like this isn't, this shouldn't see, be seen as an end all type of situation, but at the same time, I mean, if you think about it, if they have the option to like, to not go to school, like that's time they can use to find a provider, you know, that's time their parents can work with their kids. So it doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm just hiding in my my room, you know, waiting it out. Like, like the time could be used productively. It's not like you're just telling the kid, like, stay home and don't do anything about it. You're, you're saying, hey, here's some time for you to, you know, to settle what you're or settle what you're dealing with or to, you know, find somebody that can help you. And it's not a free for all. I I have to just jump in real fast. Like I know that it reads like it is a free for all, Mm -hmm. but individual school districts do have the power to implement measures to support these new policies, such as if you have a kid and they've missed an X number of days in a row, the school district can absolutely follow up with the parents and follow up with the families in those that type of infrastructure is in place so that we can find out, you know, why has this particular kid been out? But at the same time, we have to support these kids. We have to stop these kids from winding up in local hospitals. And and I would add just from um, the education coverage I've done and my sources over here that I think there's, we talked about this before the show, there is a shift occurring. Um, You know, maybe those of us, um, we we might've skipped school a few times, you know, the rules around truancy, Becca Bill, um, was a, a lot more strict. You might have gone to Juvie Hall for uh, for something. I think this really shifts uh, the accountability to, on on the families and students to make their determination when uh, when they need to be at school. And um, yeah, and I but I do also have to wonder. Um, I, I think this goes a long ways towards reducing the stigma. Um, you know, whether you're seeking mental or for you putting that on par with physical health, but, you know, we've missed so much 
uh, we, uh, the collective we of the students of uh, the state of Washington have missed an awful lot of school. And that's a missed day is a missed learning opportunity too. So, uh, but I hear exactly what you're saying there, Mike, and that uh, school districts will have to be proactive and, and essentially um, making sure that, that students don't fall through the cracks with this as well. Yeah, that's what Jen and Bitterlake basically said. This will be helpful for my son who's doing well in school and sometimes needs a mental health day. However, I worry about students who are already struggling struggling academically. Will they slip through the giant crack this opens up? And Mark in Arbor Heights says not requiring a doctor's note is a good thing, but a parent's note should be required. At that age, I definitely would have abused a system like that. That's a good point, though. A parent, like a parent's note, I, I do understand. I just, when I see this bill, I just see someone taking a stand for kids. I think that, you know, originally this is born from the pandemic and the virtual fatigue that students were having and all of that stuff. Now we're transitioning the kids coming back to school and being afraid to be at school because of all of the, just the stuff that's happening with the shootings. And I mean, kids are going through so much at this time right now that if we have a chance to give them a break, I'd say give them a break. And I know that I'm super, super Seattle specific, Bill, but I work with high schoolers in Seattle right now. And in Seattle public schools, if you're in high school, they accept your assignments at any point during the semester. So you could do them on the very last day or any day you could take them. So the idea that kids actually have to be in class every single day to get through school, uh, you know, it's becoming a fallacy, just like the idea that we need to sit in a cubicle to do our jobs at work. Like the world is changing and this feels like a positive shift. And I guess just jumping off this point, I mean, I think the other thing is interesting about um, Josh's point about truancy and like missing school, like, you know, it used to be like a badge of honor if you like, you know, had perfect attendance, like, you know, in my community, if you had perfect ten or in, my, in the Yakima school district, if you had perfect attendance, like you got a bike. I mean, that's how like attendance is like very much emphasized. And I feel like the pandemic did change that, like oh, hey, maybe we should, like, if you're sick, you should stay home, you know, or, you know, or if, or, and I think this bill is great because it's equating mental health with physical health. Like mental health is just as important as um, physical health. So if you have an issue, you should address it. You should have time to stay home and like help, and the parents should work with your kids to like address those issues. Couple more notes from uh, listeners, and then we'll move on to other weekend review topics. Uh, thanks to everybody who, who wrote in. Carolyn in Capitol Hill says, "Being able to skip class because of mental health reasons without having to explain to an adult what I was dealing with would have been a huge lifesaver for me in high school. How many classes did I struggle through, learning nothing, just feeling more on the brink of a crisis? Kids and young adults are very smart, and we should treat them with more respect." Obviously, this type of proposal should come with vastly more counselors and funding for resources in schools who can be reaching out to students who are taking many mental health days. It probably isn't, says Carolyn, which is annoying because it means the onus for navigating this falls mostly on the students. But uh, we discussed there are some some measures in place to try to avoid that situation. And finally, I'll just add, we've got so many, so many more comments here from our Community Feedback Club, but I'll add Wendy, who says, I support this idea. Mental health days should be for adults, too. Calling in well. <laughs> Companies need to respect employees' personal lives. Sort of, Mike, the, to the point you're making, it's not, this is not just about kids. I second that. All of our companies should give us unlimited (laughs) mental health days. Yes. I love that idea. (laughs) 
Well, to join, uh, by the way, just in case you would be like to, to also share your opinions with us on KUOW, we have this community feedback club, and you can uh, sign up for that. Just text the word CLUB to area code 206-926-9955. I'll give that number again. Uh, and that's uh, when we have you on our list, then I'll send out questions every week, and we get great responses like that. Um, so, again, text the word CLUB to area code 206 926 9955. Okay, uh, thanks to everybody who weighed in. Thanks for uh, Mike and everyone else, uh, my and Josh, for letting us know about this new state law. It doesn't really take super effect for not, you know until the school year. This is happening. It's ki- officially kicking in here right at the end of the school year. So we'll be talking about this more as we head into uh, school year 2022-23. You're listening to Week in Review. We're live streaming the show, so you can watch us on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. And then I'll be right back with uh, Mai Wong from Crosscut, South Seattle Emeralds, Mike Davis, and the Kitsap Sons, Josh Farley, in a moment. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Mike Davis and I are in Seattle, and Josh Farley's in Bremerton, and Mai Wong is in Yakima. Mai, we had the Folklife Festival here in Seattle return after a pandemic absence. Uh, Spokane is bringing back a couple of its biggest festivals. How's that going? So, yeah, um, so uh, I guess the two big events that I think when people think of Spokane is Bloomsday, which is an 8K road race that was held on May 1st. They had um, they had it after two years of doing it virtually. And then Hoop Nothing Fest. like a virtual road race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then Hoop Fest, which is coming up in about two weeks, um, is coming back um, after two, a two-year hiatus. Um, last, They tried to have it last year, and they actually moved it from their usual spot in June to September in hopes of, you know, kind of waiting out the pandemic and then you guys can kind of guess what happened around September. It was something, a little thing called the Delta variant. So it was very heartbreaking. They ended up having to cancel like weeks before. Um, so, um, so yeah, so it's a pretty big deal um, for both of these events. They bring tens of thousands of people to Spokane between the participants, volunteers, um, spectators. Yeah, I didn't. I knew about Bloomsday. I actually didn't know about Hoop Fest, although I found out it's a huge deal. Mike, you knew about it. You're, Mike, you're looking at me like I'm shaking your head. <laughs> How dare you, Bill? You are in C- oh, Come on, Hoop Fest. Like, I don't know. Hoop Fest was just such a big part of so many of our lives just growing up around here. Like, you get to go down there. Um, it's like a whole weekend thing. You get to spend a night. There's so many. There's like thousands and thousands of teams. I know, Mike, you got all the details, but I'm sorry, Bill. That was just egregious that you did not know about Hoop Fest. <laughs> but it's not a basketball fan. I, I guess not. It's uh, it's a, it, I mean, I, it's a three on three basically, and it's outdoors, right? I mean, mm-hmm. speaking of the pandemic, it's it's not indoors, right? But yeah, I mean, it's right in the middle. I mean, that's I mean, to speak to Mike's point, I mean, Hoop Fest is so beloved because literally you're bringing all these teams in the middle of downtown Spokane. So, but pre pandemic in 2019, there were six thousand teams of uh, totaling wow. twenty four thousand players playing in downtown Spokane. I'm just think about the visual here, you know, and then that's just the participants. And then there's all the spectators, family, friends. Um, you know, I interviewed a, a player for this story and he was talking about growing up, you know, he, 
all his cousins from Montana would come up. He joked that his house was a hostel for all his cousins who were playing in the tournament. So, I mean, Mike's right. It's such a, it's a big deal. Um, you know, Spokane's kind of building this reputation as like a basketball town, you know, it's the home of Gonzaga. I mean, you know, so yeah, it was really heartbreaking for a lot of people that this event was canceled. Yeah, I, I was curious, my um, if if we if we know yet whether um, you know we have a labor report today showing eight point six percent inflation in, in May from the previous year, you know, um, I, I I would think the high price of gas it's not a short drive to Spokane from the no. Seattle area, no. and I was curious if uh, if if there was any ch- chance that maybe the high prices, whether gas or otherwise, would affect attendance this year. Um, it definitely will. Um, so uh, they, the spokesman review just published a story this week. They interviewed um, Riley Stockton. And by the way, uh, Riley is the nephew of John Stockton, famous Gonzaga player, Utah Jazz. Bill, player. you know who that is? Yeah. Uh, va- <laughs> vaccine skeptic. Yes, I yes. do. Yeah, uh, Gary, some, yeah, John is known Gary for Payton. more things now, but... <laughs> Uh, Gary Payton said John Stockton was the toughest defender he ever played against and a dirty player as well. Oh, oh wow. Okay. So, and seeing Gary Payton, his son's in the NBA finals right now. So lots of family ties happening in basketball. Um, so yeah, so Riley did an interview and he said that um, they're expecting 3,500 teams, which is still a lot of teams, but that's quite a drop from 6,000, which is what we saw in 2019. So, oh. so yes, Josh, definitely um, not just, I mean, definitely inflation likely playing that, but definitely just people's hesitation about the pandemic. Um, you know, in my story, I interviewed um, one of the what's known as a perennial. And those are the runners who run in who's run in every Bloomsday since the first one in 1977. His name is Ro- Roger Aldrich. And Roger's saying, you know, hey, I'm 74 years old. Like, I'm really happy the event's coming back, but I just don't feel comfortable, you know, being, you know, downtown Spokane with thousands of people without masks. I mean, even if it's outdoors. So he, he opted to run it virtually and he lives in Spokane. So he ran the course like the week before. So there's still people not rushing back to events yet. And that's going to impact numbers. My, I know that your article mentioned some of the economic impacts of missing both of these events for Spokane. Does Spokane have a plan to bounce back? I mean, if these events come back and they come back slower, I mean, what is the city going to do? I mean, I think the goal right now is definitely just having just having the event show up. I mean, I think that for, for this year, it's just an achievement, especially for Hoop Fest when they were so close last year and they had to pull out the last minute. Just just having the event is kind of the main focus right now. But yeah, I think there's definitely a conversation. I know when I was talking to Blooms, the Bloomsday folks, they're definitely talking about like, okay, we got to you know up our marketing, like get some strategies out there. Um, you know, and I think what's really interesting about Spokane, um, WSU actually did a study about of events in Spokane. And one of the things they said that was great about Spokane is that they had like kind of this community group. So like police, city officials, parks and rec, they met regularly. So they're meeting like every month to talk about like not just these two events, but like events in like the greater Spokane area. And so they're, they're like aware of kind of the situation, they're aware of numbers. So they're, they're already working together just to bring the events back. So I expect they're going to be working together to figure out how to, you know, get more people to participate in the future. I think if, if Top Gun Maverick is any indication, I think people aren't afraid of getting out and about. And uh, I think um, it seems like if COVID is not going to be the, going to be the reason, um, seems like. 
All right, Spokane Hoop Fest, which bills itself the biggest outdoor three-on-three basketball tournament on earth. Uh, Josh, you are concerned about inflation, but you're not saying the basketballs are going to be overinflated. Those are set to a certain standard, and that's not going to change. I just want to reassure people. And then uh, Bloomsday, which is a it's a James Joyce party, which happens all in lots and lots of countries, with you know readings and costumes. Why it's a race in Bloomsday, I don't know, but it's a yeah, it's a long-standing Spokane. Yeah, so yeah, literally was um they had uh, an Olympic marathoner who's living in Spokane just decided, hey, let's uh, let's gather downtown, and the first race was like two thousand people. So and Mm -hmm. then it kind of grew exponentially from there. Is it still called the Lilac Bloomsday Race? Is it? Does, is I mean, the official name is like Lilac Bloomsday Run, yeah. but like people, nobody knows it as Lilac Bloomsday. Oh. And like, and, and I don't think, and I almost think most people who participate in Bloomsday probably don't even know the James Joyce reference. <laughs> they, yes. they only know like, oh, that's just the, that, you know, they just know I'm going to be running eight point K miles down downtown Spokane. That's what they're they're thinking about. So, right. so no literary readings during the race, unfortunately. <laughs> I finished this long race. I feel heroic, like Ulysses, and I don't know why that is that coming to mind. Okay, so uh, next topic on Week in Review. We have man, how many times have we discussed this in the last two years? Seattle has this open wound, and it's hard to heal it. Uh, and the behavior of some city officials make that wound harder to close. When the Black Lives Matter protests were heating up two summers ago, Seattle police decided to abandon their East Precinct building on Capitol Hill. After the police left, demonstrators turned that area into a so-called autonomous zone of protest and mutual aid. At first, the mayor jokingly called it the summer of love, but the city just paid a settlement to the father of a man who was killed in that protest zone. Some residents and business owners say they were harassed and vandalized there with no police protection. So, who ordered the officers to leave their post? Well, the police chief at the time, Carmen Best, has said that she was not involved in that planning. It was a command decision from, you know, uh, and these things happen. I want to preface this by saying, you know, often there's dynamic situations. Sure. Things are happening in the middle. You're in charge and you're making decisions. And somebody, you know, I think people question, why weren't they talking to you about it if you're the chief? And I said, I would have preferred that happen, to be honest with right. you. But also, there's lots of things that happen in the field that are happening right then. The, but the South Seattle Emerald has obtained text messages that show that Chief Best knew more about the East Precinct plans than she has let on. And those are just the texts that still exist. The Seattle, or rather, the, uh, Axios reports that Chief Best now admits to deleting texts from her government-issued phone. So, Mike Davis, let's start with the police department abandoning the East Precinct. This is this is two years ago. Why does it matter what the police chief knew about that and when she knew it? Well, I think it it always matters when the chief of police lies to the public and lies to the media. I mean, you just played that clip right there. I mean, there was also like Fox News reports where she gave direct quotes to reporters that literally made it seem like protesters just took the precinct. But that's not really what happened. And as you just mentioned, you know, abandoning abandoning the East Precinct is what led to that whole area becoming that autonomous zone, becoming the chop. And in that settlement that you just mentioned, taxpayers had to pay $500,000 in a wrongful death settlement for a 19-year-old young man who was shot in that zone. And in that lawsuit from his father, a lawsuit in which Mayor Durkin, um, Councilmember Sawant, and the city of Seattle were all named, 
I mean, that's literally what the suit was for, was because SPD abandoned the precinct, that area became the chop, and there was no policing, no protections, and it led to an unsafe situation where where a young man lost his life. So yes, it matters, and it still matters to this day. And I think a larger point that matters is that Chief Best deleted those text messages. She said that they were transitory, uh, whatever she meant by that, but in the state of Washington, that's a felony. Deleting public records is a felony. So if she deleted those texts the same way that we know Mayor Durkin deleted texts, that's a crime. But my, again, I, I, I want to be clear about that. My understanding, <laughs> the reporter Lewis Kahn from Axios was on Soundside yesterday, uh, KOW's noon interview show, and was saying that that apparently public officials can delete transitory or just sort of um, uh, they they can make some judgments about what's not necessary to keep. However, to your point, I believe that if there is a lawsuit or a public records request, and by the way, public records requests are pretty constant, then they are not allowed to, it's not up to them to make that judgment. Do I have that right? You do have that right. And I think the reason why a lot of folks are coming hard at the idea that Chief Best was deleting those text messages is because she was deleting those messages during 2020 in the height of the George Floyd protest. It's really hard to determine what is and is not transitory when the city's on fire. So like it, it's it was just a really, really, really bad timing. And, and I will pass this on to my colleagues who appear to be chomping at the bit to get in here. But I just want to say um, we have we have a five hundred thousand dollar settlement for the young man that got killed. The city attorney's office had to pay $400,000 for forensic analysis into missing text messages from city leaders. And then the Seattle Times sued the city over these lost text messages and missing records. And that was another $200,000 settlement. So we're talking about a million dollars that taxpayers in Seattle had to pay that are all related to this time with missing text messages and lack of accountability over who did and didn't abandon the precinct. So we can parse through who did what all we want to. But at the end of the day, taxpayers are out a million dollars over all of this misjudgment and who in leadership is ever going to be held accountable. So I have like two points I wanted to kind of jump in on. So um, number one, um, you know, I think it matters because there was a huge talking point, as Mike pointed out, that, you know, these protesters just took over and like they had no choice and there was no there was no intention or as you know, as Carmen Best pointed out. Um, but I mean, I think those texts that we do have do show that there was there, there was an intended abandonment <laughs> like it that that for me that's what sticks out because yeah the storyline had been like oh chop kind of just overwhelmed them and they just had to leave and and that clearly doesn't seem to be the case my do i have that right you you have that right and i'll also point out that those leaked text messages were not from the phone of chief best either those were missing but mm-hmm. other phones had those texts so mm-hmm. And it seems like every time I show up on this show, like we're always talking about somebody deleting text. Like I feel like the last time I was on Week in Review, we were talking about um, the uh, redistricting, one of the redistricting commission members deleting texts. So I feel like this issue keeps happening over and over again. We have officials who keep like trying to walk out on the rules and being like, oh, 
oh, I didn't mean to do this, but, like, they know what they're doing. Like, the fact this keeps happening over and over again, it's, like, I'm kind of tired of it, honestly. Like, there needs to be some sort of accountability and punishment for, like, for deleting text. Like, it's it's becoming a problem. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I've, obviously, any journalist that's worked in the state um, knows we have a public records law for a reason. I've made, I can't even count how many records requests I've had to make over the years, but you know, I think I'm not sure how this is going to work out in the litigation. But one thing that I'm really watching for as a reporter, and I think other reporters should watch for this too, is how, what, what are the effects and ramifications afterwards? Uh, you know, we, ha- we have this law for a reason. Um, in this case, it, it appears, at least to my reading, you know, that they're communicating in some ways, like almost like a back channel. If you know that you can text and then you can delete, if it's transitory or whatever verbiage you choose to use, you're essentially saying, you know, our law enforcement agencies, our government leaders and their lawyers um, are following, you know, essentially uh, closely. Um, I think they're following this to see what they can and can't get away with and how they communicate. And I think our legislature was clear the citizens of the state believe in the law, and we as journalists use this law to hold our you know, leaders accountable, and um, may- maybe we'll see something of a testing of the guardrails here in terms of um, what the results of the litigation are. Well, Mike, and that's think, my yeah. – yes, go ahead, Mike. I, I just am finding it interesting, too, is, like, when you hear these officials talk about deleting texts, they almost make it sound like they're doing you a favor, like, oh, I'm just deleting these incidental texts, so you don't have to read them, right? But, like, I don't mind. I mean, I've done, like, a lot of public records, like everyone here, and, like, that's just part of the job. Like, if I have to read through, you know, what's up, hi, you know, all those incidental texts to get to the good stuff, that's just part of the job of going through public records. So, yeah, that I don't feel like you know, I mean, I know that they have the discretion to delete texts that are incidental, but it's just easier if you want to be above the law and just be like, just be above it. Like, just leave them and then let the reporters go through the law, go through the text. It's fine. Mike, both Josh and Mai have mentioned accountability. Um, so that's my next question to you. What happens next? Is there is there going to be an investigation? Is anybody going to be held accountable for deleting public records? you should ask well you know there was another report from axios and you know they reached out to mayor harold the city attorney's office and bob ferguson all they did was point fingers at each other they all leaned on the next person to be able to do something the mayor said you know that's not his job the city attorney's office wanted to kick it up Uh, big shot bob seems like he's not going to touch it unless insley tells him to so, no, I don't think there's going to be accountability. And it's hard to, to see why there will be accountability. These are the same groups of people who would be the ones deleting messages. I, I can't see them coming down on this. Like, it's just, I don't know, man. No, Bill, I don't think that there's any hope that we're going to see any accountability. I think the best thing that we could do is just keep public pressure. I think the journalists, um, major shout out to Carolyn Bick at the Emeralds. Uh, they're doing amazing work. There was some great reporting out of Axios. Um, I've seen a great conversation that came from KUOW. It's on all of us just to keep pressing the issue. And hopefully we won't see things like this happen in the future. But as for looking back, no, I don't think there will be any accountability for anything that happened in 2020. 
Well, and, and I would just add, you know, as journalists, when we're making records requests and doing these kinds of things, remember, there's there's a two way or or more communication that's occurring. And oftentimes um, I probably I'm seeing some, not, you know, nods about um, you sometimes see the other side of the, and sometimes the other side doesn't delete them. And oftentimes our local governments have to pay out because you ask for them. They don't have the record, but you actually had the record. See what I'm saying? So, I mean, I think there's other ways to get at this and maybe we're not done. Maybe we haven't heard the last of uh, what happened in 2020 on this case. I hope not. But just one last point, you know, it really, it really, really sucks when we see leaders, um, when we finally get quote unquote accountability, like the Seattle Times, I guess you can call that accountability, but it's the taxpayers that have to pay. Like they, they delete the messages, they destroy the records. And then the journalists say, Hey, you can't do that. And you can sue, but it's not them that gets punished. It's the taxpayer. It's the people that they're supposed to be serving in the first place. So the system just has a lot of flaws within itself. All right. That's just deleted texts. What is going to happen if our public officials find out about burner phones? Let's not (laughs) even tell them about that. Um, So Thank you for the update. You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. That's Mike Davis, Opinions Editor at South Seattle Emerald. We've got Josh Farley here, Kitsap Suns Military and Bremerton reporter. Uh, We're going to talk about both the military and Bremerton here in just a moment after a short break. We've got Mai Huang, Crosscut Central and Eastern Washington reporter, and we're streaming it all on Facebook and YouTube. Search KUOW.org, and don't go away. Quick break, and then more Week in Review. KUOW's Week in Review here. I'm Bill Radke with South Seattle Emerald's Mike Davis, Crosscuts Mai Huang, and Kitsap Sons Josh Farley. So Seattle's got the, I don't know, the Smith Tower. Tacoma has the Glass Museum. Bremerton's got that giant green crane, Josh. Is it is it considered a landmark, an icon? That's right. I would all of the above. I would say um, it's on the National Historic Registry. Uh, anybody who's traveled to Bremerton, probably by car as well, definitely as by ferry, uh, knows this green steel structure. It's 25 stories tall, weighs uh, 2,400 uh, tons. It hasn't been used in about 30 years, but it was built during the New Deal, during a revitalization of the shipyards um, around the country. It, it was built, whopping $500,000 was, was spent, and the same workers that constructed it in Pennsylvania um, had just finished the Empire State Building. So it has a lot of history, and it's also really important to the community. I, I know this is, uh, some people might not believe me, but I've heard from many residents here that call it sort of view the hammerhead as our space needle in some in some ways. So um, the Navy says it essentially stands in the way of progress. And this week they announced that it's going to be torn down uh, to make way for uh, essentially for new facilities, new dry docks. The Navy is going to be spending billions of dollars here um, to prepare the next generation of nuclear powered vessels, uh, mainly aircraft carriers, submarines. Um, to make sure they can be maintained and they need room. And this train also is very old and um, it has a, a lot of work that it needs. Um, we, uh, the Navy would have to invest a lot of money. So it's not um, a working crane though. You say it needs, it, it needs what, what does it need? It's just standing there, right? Well, when you, when you think about the kind of weight that you're dealing with, you think about um, it's, it's a, you know, essentially um, it, it 
complex structure that you have to put money into. It's funny, a few years ago, I actually did, speaking of public records requests, I found out, you know, we flow, anybody familiar with, with the mothball fleet? So where they, we just keep vessels and um, that, that are done, their time is over, they're just waiting to be dismantled. It's like $250,000 a year for a floating aircraft carrier just to be maintained more than that now probably that was a few years ago so in terms of icons it's it's important to the city it's important to the region and to the shipyard it kind of represents that you know industrial spirit helped to win um you know world war ii um and has has helped keep the navy afloat um but you know i really make made me think a lot about our icons in our area um we've lost a lot as well you know you think about the calacala old timers will remember this is this Art Deco shaped ferry? I know you know it, Bill. Um, you know, know. It, uh, it was never saved. And we also had the USS Missouri here, where, uh, you know, the uh, World War II essentially was ended. Um, the Japanese surrendered on, on its decks um, in, in Tokyo Bay. And it, USS Missouri, of course, wasn't destroyed, it was just taken to Hawaii. It's not here either. And so the hammerhead is kind of a continue, uh, continuing sort of. Uh, tradition, if you will, of getting rid of um, some icons in our area. And of course, as a society, we have to decide what we can keep, what we can afford to keep. And the Navy, of course, has a mission um, ahead of it that it believes is important to, to, uh, to sustain uh, itself going forward in this world in the 21st century. I got questions. Any questions, panel? <laughs> well, what, what are they going to replace it with? Good question. Okay, so good question. So the the cranes that operate now are uh, not as heavyweight. They don't require as much steel. Um, there are still a lot of them, but there are more definitely more modern versions. This crane particularly moved, um, you know, giant essentially giant guns on uh, heavy cruisers and and battleships. It's just really not necessary anymore. So. The main thing is one of the Navy's proposals is they want to build a giant new dry dock. Um, and within this dry dock, they'd be able to essentially the newest type Gerald Ford class aircraft carrier, you know, it's essentially the big super carriers you see planes take off and landing. Again, I reference Top Gun, Top Maverick. Gun number two, reference number two on today's program. I haven't seen the film myself, but um, and uh, and then submarines as well. We have new uh, new classes of submarines. So. Uh, in any case, um, it basically, it needs the footprint. It, it needs the space to, uh, to, to accommodate it. So my thought, I know, um, I know we're talking about like the Navy and the, but I guess my thought is like, are they really, are they, once they demolish their, the crane, is there anything left that they can kind of preserve for like a museum or like just yeah. to, as some sort of mark of history that this was like the entryway to Bremerton for a for, long time? For sure. That's a great question too. We're, tr- <laughs> we're, st- we're still asking. I heard back from the Navy uh, this, this morning and that will be to, to be determined. Um, normally with these uh, with, you know, with certainly with a lot of the old ships, you know, this is a lot of steel we're talking about. And most of the time um, it, uh, it, it goes and it's cut up and um, used for, for something else in, in the future. But, there could be something to be saved. Um, people who traveled to Bremerton, you know, might remember the old Minette Bridge that used to be here, and they did save a railing of that before that was replaced. Again, another, another. Some some old timers would say another icon that uh, was was lost. But so it, it is possible that uh, that something could be saved from from the crane. 
Y'all right. lose a lot of icons. You need to mention <laughs> like know, four or five icons that Bremerton has lost. <laughs> Yeah, I know. That makes Bremerton iconoclastic, I believe. (laughs) Iconoclastic, exactly. So, I I mean, I think this speaks, though, to a wider, you know, conversation that we all have. Um, And and look in the city of Seattle with the battle over, you know, preserving buildings and um, and what do we keep and what, what do we get rid of and what is in the way of progress and what is something worth being saved to remember for the future. Um, These are these are things all of our communities, no matter where you are in Puget Sound or around the country or around the world, grapple with. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we saved Hoopfest. Yes, at least <laughs> Hoopfest. <laughs> Still with us. Why? Uh, just a couple more questions about uh, the, you. You, by the way, you've, if you've taken a ferry, the state ferry into Bremerton, you've you've floated right. It's right there, right past the giant. I didn't know it was oh, yeah. called Hammerhead. Just knew I knew about the giant green crane. Um, why was it built in Pennsylvania? We have steel out here. Why did they have to take it through the Panama Canal? Why didn't they build it here? Great question. Um, so you. I did. Some, yeah, yeah. I did some research on this, um, and the Dravo Company of Pennsylvania, um, again, fresh off of the uh, Empire State Building project, built it on an island in uh, Pennsylvania because they were that good at it. They knew how to do it. Not a single person was injured or died when they constructed it, and it was cheaper for them to build the pieces take it by rail from, from Philadelphia to Baltimore and then uh, ship it by sea through the Panama Canal. And then they just put it right on the pier and they assembled it like Legos. And in five months time, it was ready to go. Um, and of course, the rest is history. Okay. They were good. At it. That's fair. Finally, is this a done deal? I think it's fair to say it's a done deal. It's the Navy's land, you know, it's the Navy's land, uh, the shipyard. It, it's um, they, they will have a public comment, which right now people can, people can chime in. Uh, there's a website that's been created and they certainly want to have the feedback. June 23rd, but, 5.30 PM public comment. There you go. Yeah. There's public comment um, that people can make, but I, you know, I think uh, as I said before, um, in the conversations I'm having, there are people that have a, have a lot of, you know, they're, they're very sad about this, but at the same time, um, again, the, the Navy has a, has priority. It has a, you know, it's, they would say it's, you know, the mission here uh, has to come, has to come before, um, this piece of history. Could it be moved? I don't know. It's a, it's an old hulking, you know, bunch of steel, um, that, that might be tricky and might be more costly than, than, than it's worth. So we might be losing something, and it just so happened it was this week that they chose to uh, to make the formal announcement. Okay, then let's talk about from a giant piece of steel to a tiny piece of tin. I didn't actually know it was tin, My, We're talking about Mai's over in, in wine country in Yakima. I knew that some wine sellers use uh, screw caps instead of corks, but there are other changes that I only know about to Washington wine bottles and other wine bottles because I read your Crosscut article, and uh, it includes the glass and the little the little. Ca- I didn't know they were called capsules either. Will you please fill us in? Yeah, I actually have I actually have a prop here. Oh, um, just happens. To, yeah, so this is actually one of the wineries I interviewed for uh, Fortuity Sellers. Um, they're in Wapato, yeah. and yeah, so this She's this thing right here. Yeah, you're, you're indicating <laughs> the neck of the bottle. Yeah, and so this part here is is called the capsule. So um, yeah, so that is what we're talking about. Yeah, so um, actually, I was at this winery and I was interviewing the owner, and she's like, you know, you should really look, you should really uh, like ask about wine packaging because it's changing. And so that's how I kind of got into this story. And yeah, so this this winery, um, this is uh, not a great example because it's still on here, but they have a line. They were seeing, they were kind of having these conversations 
about packaging. So they were talking about like, you know, packaging, I think before it was very much like driven by like aesthetics and tradition. Like, you know, let's have a heavy wine bottle with a, a cork. It looks classy. Mm-hmm. You know, it shows like you have the stuff inside is high quality. And, you know, as this wine winery kind of started having conversations with their customers, you know, this part is actually, you could actually recycle this in some places. Again, you're pointing to, if the listeners can't picture the capsule, it's, you know. It's, yeah, it's, it's also, like I'm sorry. Little, so, yeah, so oh. there's a tin capsule. No, I'm sorry. Okay, you can see it on the live stream, but you can't see it on the radio. Um, right. So the, the tin capsule, it kind of covers up the the top of the bottle. And so it's called the capsule. It has a and, foil wrap on it. And it's and, a foil wrap on yeah, it. And it's okay. made of tin or aluminum. Or so, aluminum, um, yeah. So, so, yeah. Um, so what they were finding when they were talking to customers that, uh, their customers just kind of threw it away. Like they weren't, so there's a lot of waste mm-hmm. and, and cost. And so, you know, their, their, their supplier in France were actually having labor issues. So it made it kind of more difficult to access these items. And so for some of their line, they started, you know, having some bottles where they don't have any of these tin or aluminum capsules. Mm-hmm. And then another winery I interviewed, um, Kiona in Benton city, they, last year they started experimenting with lighter bottles because again, you know, the carbon footprint, you know, is, is ma- massive, you know, the amount of energy to just make the bottle, to transport it, to deliver the wine. Um, they have customers outside of Benton City, so they're shipping wine. So those costs add up. That's a lot of gas. So, um, so yeah, so they started experimenting with um, lighter bottles and, and this feedback has generally been like, oh, we didn't even notice. Like some of them just didn't even notice that oh, you guys were using heavier bottles. And so they're making these changes for cost savings, for supply chain reasons, for sustainability. And then, you know, and then that's just the the traditional bottle. And then there's a conversation about alternative packaging. So like um, cans Um, at the supermarket, you see those like those cans of wine now, or you see the bag in the box wine and like that's becoming an option. So Mike, would you show up at a party and present a... (laughs) A thin, light, glassed bottle and with with a screw cap or 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 no capsule on it. Would you make that? You change? know, Bill, if I'm in the store and I pick up that bottle of wine and that glass isn't heavy, I'm gonna assume that they're trying to give me less wine. So I'm gonna put that one back. First yes. of all, you're not gonna trick me with that. Oh. But the 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 box, no. No, 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 no. Okay. You can't show up to a social gathering with the box of wine. They're going to think that you bought that at the gas station on the way over there. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just, the aesthetic matters with wine. It really, it matters. That was oh, the thrust my, of your so article. Mike's a traditionalist. Huh? Yes, that's what your article was about, was about tradition, being tra- a traditionalist, <laughs> Mike, that that matters too. Yeah, I didn't expect to. I didn't expect it to be among our panelists. I mm-hmm. thought, you know, we'd be a little enlightened. By, no, just kidding. Um, but you know, I, the counter argument I'd make, Mike, is that actually you're doing your host a favor because with box wine, it turns out that um, once you open it, you can actually still drink it for several months. So if there's still wine left over, your host can actually drink it like for several more months. So mm-hmm. you're actually doing them a favor. If you bring See, a box. Now you're bringing me back. You're, you're bringing me back around. That, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Josh, have you been recycling your tin capsules all along? Always. Always, Bill. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I have to be honest. I'm going to join the tradition bandwagon here. Uh, the one oh. other thing that I just, I can't, it, this was in your article too. My, I, I, I can't, the sensation of blasting off the cork on champagne. Oh, There's nothing yeah. like it. 
And whenever we celebrate a good story, a life event, whatever you have going, that's a a cause for, for there it's goes with the drink. Mm. How do you, how do you not blast that? You're so right. right. (laughs) Yeah, my. Now what? Well, well, to be fair, I mean that—that's how I ended my story. Was you know this, you know this woman at this wine at the wine cellar in Portland was like was such an advocate for all these things, but then she says in the end, I still like you know popping the cork with my champagne bottle. So yeah, so there's I don't think traditionalism is going away. It's just that it's not the option, the only option. That heavy bottle, it just feels like, I don't know, like monks, <laughs> monks made this thing centuries ago, and it was regal. Dust, dusty. Regal. That's that's regal. my experience. Wow, I did not expect I did not expect this resistance <laughs> to change Hidebound. here. We are hidebound. Okay, <laughs> it's time to start wrapping up the show. We can review. We always want to leave listeners with something to smile about. I'm smiling because I'll turn it over to you here, but but I want to say I'm smiling because we're going to do a live event devoted to our new podcast, which is called KUOW Shorts. My short series is up now called Subtext, What Goes Unsaid, and the latest episode is about the unsaid messages behind the so-called body positivity movement. That's up right oh. now. Go, f- It's good. Find KUOW Shorts wherever you get your podcast, and the live event is going to be at McCall Hall Thursday, July 7th. And we're going to show you how to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. So bring us your own personal dilemma, and we'll show you how to confront it or perhaps passively avoid it. Or just show up and watch the show on July 7th. I'm smiling about that. Anybody else have a smile to leave us with? I can say quickly, I know we talked a lot about getting rid of icons. Uh, The one I forgot to mention that we're keeping is... The Virginia Five, The anybody that goes to, you know, uh, South Lake Union knows this vessel. It's, it uh, was boat. born June 11th, 1922, mm-hmm. and it's just got out of dry dock and it's back. And uh, they're doing tours and, um, and rentals, and you'll hear the steam whistle for what they hope is another 100 years. So that's, uh, that's an icon uh, that, that's worth keeping, and it's mm-hmm. going to be around. I've been on that boat. Anybody else? smiling so i'm smiling because i'm at the end of a week of year-round chaos <laughs> um my it's my last my daughter's last week of school daughter's last week of dance daughter's last week of girl scouts yep. and all the events are literally happening this week so i've been like running around as the dance mom hot dog supplier you know fruit buyer i mean i'm really tired so i'm just happy that i made it through this week to be honest and did week in review that's impressive thank you for doing it all of that mike anything to add any yes of course but it's it's officially summer summer's here my kids also out of school and i mean it doesn't it doesn't look like summer Uh but it is (laughs) it's upon us and any day now we are going to be at the beach in the sand and it's going to be amazing (laughs) i like your optimism uh, thank you, Mike Davis. Heading to the sand. Uh, that's the South Seattle Emerald Opinions editor there. And we've got Josh Farley, Bremerton reporter, military reporter at the Kitsap Sun, and Crosscuts Central and Eastern Washington reporter, Mai Wong. Mai, thanks for joining us. Thanks to all of you for being Week in Review. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good one, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Same to you. Thanks to Kevin Kniestead for producing the show. And Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza giving us social media and live streaming support. Bernard, Bernard Wallet making it all sound great on the radio board. And have a fantastic week. We'll see you again next week on Week in Review.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.